Blog Talk Radio. Well, good morning, my friends. This is your host, Dr. Deb Carlin, here at The K Factor, where K equals kindness, and the factors are all the things that lead to it. I hope you're having a beautiful summer morning, and I hope you're feeling well. When we get up in the morning, we want to open our eyes feel happy that we're here again, that we're experiencing the light of the day. Or if you're like me, you like to get up before dawn so you can see the night, say goodbye, and then hello to the brightness of a new day that unfolds as the sun rises. I love that because it makes me feel like I'm getting a really fresh start every morning. And I want to feel free in my body, to move without pain, without disease, without discomfort, without aches that make my movement somehow limited or appear injured and painful. But, you know, so many of us go through periods of time where that's exactly our experience. We're in agony. We're in pain. We're uncomfortable. And if you're one of the people who's experienced it, then this is the absolute best episode of my show for you to be attending to, tuning into, because my guest today is Ann Sarkison, and she is going to talk to us about her book, The Toxic Staple. Now, I know Ann. I know her well. I know her heart story. I know her mind. This book is an important body of work. She is a wife, a mom, a grandmother, a really loving person. We're in a group that you've heard me talk a lot about. It's a Philadelphia mindset group, masterminding. And we spend time coming together from around the world and talking about our passion in our work, in our life, something that really drives us to want to change something in the world. And Anne's book, The Toxic Staple, is all about this topic. So, Anne, I want to thank you for being here with us today. Dr. Deb, thank you so much for this opportunity to talk about my favorite subject. I know. It really is your favorite subject. So how, what is The Toxic Staple? What does that title mean, please? Well, uh, to me, that's a perfect name for what gluten is. And um, there's a researcher from Mass General who claims that gluten is poison for those people who have celiac disease. And for my family, it's, uh, it's not a nice protein, and it's created huge illness, and it's creating it around the world in large populations. Um, a lot of the population just should not be eating gluten. Right. And why... So that's the toxic staple that you're referring to. What's the problem with gluten, Ann? Well, if you have celiac disease uh, and you're uh, that sensitive, then your villi in your small intestine, now if you put your hand up and spread your fingers apart, pretend those are your villi, you Mm -hmm. have a lot of absorption room up and down each finger for all of your nutrients, all those good vitamins and minerals that you're supposed to be eating, uh, to get absorbed, to keep the body functioning optimally. 
But if you're sensitive to gluten, now make a fist slowly, and it could take months, it could take years. Um, Some people recognize this decades later. But your villi become destroyed. So now you have Mm. a fist, and you're not absorbing your vitamins and minerals, and it's no wonder (laughs) that your body is not functioning well. So uh, the visual imagery of what is happening physiologically to people who are identified as having celiac disease, correct? Yes. And what is it, what is the relationship between celiac and gluten? Well, there's there's a bigger view now of um, beyond celiac disease. You know, three or four years ago, they weren't talking about gluten intolerance. They were just talking about celiac disease. And if if you didn't test positive for celiac, but you thought you were gluten intolerant, you know, you might have been shunned a little bit. Um, Gluten intolerance or non-celiac gluten intolerance means that you're sensitive or intolerant to gluten, but you don't have the damaged villi. But you can have major, major health issues, neurological issues, Uh, almost anything issue. You can even have intestinal issues, which at one point they probably thought was just linked to um, gluten and your response in the gut. But -hmm. you can have so many other intestinal issues, and you may not have the flattened villi of celiac Mm -hmm. disease. Celiac is like one out of 100 people, so that's a very small sliver of the pie. But there is... um, a doctor from the UK who talks about, uh, he, he developed the scale of damage to your gut. And I think what's happening is they've set the bar very high so that people who finally test positive have really full-blown celiac disease. And, and that goes back to 1982, and 10 years later, he was suggesting that doctors need to look at the lower numbers, maybe look at level 3 and 2 and 1 instead of just the top level, and, and that, you know, if you have antibodies going, excuse me, antibodies going on, then, um, you know, that shows you that you're on a path probably mm. towards full-blown celiac. You know, may never get there, but so he's saying that 30, roughly 30% of the population are gluten intolerant and likely should never be consuming this stuff. So here's, here's one of the things that, that I wonder about in terms of the gluten issue. A couple of things. One, so isn't gluten thought to be that ingredient in wheat that once upon a time was so innocent, but somehow we've corrupted our crops, we've even corrupted the seeds, and so our wheat crops are very different now than they were 50 years ago or even 30 years ago, and so now it's a problem where it hadn't been a problem before? Well, I think you're partially right about that, but um, if you go back to early uh, caveman, caveman was bigger, he was taller, his brain was bigger, and his bones were more um, less arthritic and straighter when they dig them up. And then when they ran across agrarian man, 
who obviously, you know, societies were growing a little. They needed to feed people something besides berries. How many berries are there? And, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> they need, so they turned to um, processing the, the wheat. And those bones uh, from agrarian man, uh, he is shorter and has a smaller brain and um, more arthritic bones. And it seems to coincide with the uh, agrarian age. So, and then centuries ago, this thing was described, uh, you know, the, what do I want to call it? The the typical celiac patient would lose weight. Um, They had obviously very damaged villi and would suffer from diarrhea and eventually would die because they were totally malabsorbing. They were getting Mm. no nutrition. And down through the years, this has changed somewhat. So now people who are diagnosed with celiac disease may have an array of other symptoms. Some of them are silent, such as uh, osteoporosis or anemia. Or infertility is a big thing with with celiac disease, and um, so one of the things that that um, I think would be helpful for our listeners to understand if they don't already know this is that when we're talking about our physical, physiological health and well being, it really starts with our gut. It begins with what we put into our mouth, but everything really goes through from from point of entry to point of exit is our whole digestive tract. And we need for that environment to be as healthy as possible because everything stems from that. How much oxygen we have into our bloodstream, how much oxygen and blood we have into our brain, how fertile we are literally is going to be how about in part how we are nourishing this body that we're inhabiting so if our digestive system is not being fueled correctly, it's just as absurd as putting water into the gas tank on a car. If you don't put the right fuel in the automobile, it's not going to run. And you might be able to get away with it for a moment while there's other fumes still in the car, but it's going to it's going to implode on you. And basically when we're talking about the issues with gluten and celiac disease, celiac being the full-blown disease process that's really devastating if you're not celiac the gluten issue from what i understand gluten for us is kind of like eating glue as opposed to eating good nourishing food it's not flushing through your body it accumulates fat it's not allowing you to absorb nutrients appropriately it doesn't serve a healthy fact uh, a healthy uh, mission, it it gets clogged up in our body, and we're not fertile, we're not flourishing. Is that right? Well, yes. I mean, if if you can imagine, there's there's huge research on this. There are like about nineteen thousand studies, um, and many of them talk about over three hundred symptoms and maladies linked to this. Now, that doesn't leave a whole lot for one's imagination. I mean, and I know there are um, more maladies and symptoms down the road that will be linked to this if the research is done. 
Um, and the, this research comes from around the world, and we need a lot more of it right in this country here, but I don't know how much of it we're going to get. This seems so to be a problem you, with... Oh, what do go you ahead. Say to, what do you say to people when they say, well, so can I never eat pasta again? Can I never eat bread again? I say, are you kidding? There's probably at least six different types of pasta. There's a little bakery not too far, a couple towns over, that delivers um, real kind of European whole hearty bread to the uh, health food store here. There's so many um, mixes on the market now. So if you're having a party or, you're, you know, you want some cupcakes or brownies. I just had some fabulous brownies um, <laughs> <laughs> that a friend a Greek friend made with strawberries and chocolate on top, and it was the best mix ever. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's a lot easier now than it was 10 or 12 or 15 years ago. The products then were terrible. And okay. now there's a lot of competition. It's opening up. I think the prices may be coming down a little bit. So and, what people, uh, how do you, how do you know what bread to eat? How do you know what pasta to eat? What is, give us an education here. Oh, my gosh. You know, I, I don't buy all that much uh, for pasta, but I, there's a brand called Tinkiata, and that's pretty good. Um, well, you look on the label, and the pastas should be saying gluten-free somewhere. Okay. On the back, it should be saying um, otherwise. If it's not gluten-free, it should be saying, uh, especially under the allergen, uh, you know, with that new law, it should be saying contains wheat. But you have to get a little bit savvy about um, what else you should not eat, such as barley and rye. So you need to look for those. You, you need to know that malt vinegar is probably made from barley, and you don't want that. And okay. you need to know that certain soy sauces have um, wheat in them. So there's an educational uh, ladder here, but I'll, I'll tell you the alternative <laughs> Putting a little effort into this diet is just, I am so thankful that we discovered this before my grandson got any sicker and the rest of us got any sicker. I mean, our lives have totally, totally done a 180. Okay, so tell us, tell us the story. What do you mean when you say your grandson got sick? What happened? Well, he was a very healthy two-year-old, and by age five, you know how kids slim up and they lose their little pudgy fat? Well, he just kept slimming and getting thinner and thinner, and eventually he was very pale, uh, ribs thin. He was an irritable kid. He wasn't growing. Stature issues can be really big uh, with kids if they have celiac, and his bones and his muscles ached. Uh, he was hungry all the time because he he was malabsorbing and his body needed nutrition. So he was always coming every 20 minutes, Graham, can I have a snack? And, of course, if it was before dinner, I'd say no. And then when I found this out later, I felt terrible that I refused him. But And then we sat at the dinner table. He wasn't terribly hungry. His tummy always bothered him a little, not in a bad way, but just bad enough so that he didn't feel like eating a whole lot. And uh, his disposition was kind of grumpy. And, you know, after we found out about this, thank goodness, my cousin's wife had celiac. And uh, at the third family get-together that year, she finally said, well, Ann, you know, there's a test for celiac disease. Why don't you get him tested? And we did. We requested it. 
he was off the charts. And I started reading and reading and reading, and I couldn't believe the information I was finding. I became a very irate grandmother because I was very disturbed that his doctor didn't realize that any one of those symptoms could be a sign of malabsorption due to, to gluten. So and so I, I wait, 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 wait. Yeah. wait, 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 back up a yep. second here. So when this little boy is suffering with this ongoing chronic tummy ache and and slimming, slimming, were your kids taking him to the doctor and the doctor was saying, I don't know what's wrong? Oh, he was going to the doctors a lot because he would pick up colds and viruses and whatever, and, you know, he would have, um, along with myself, we would be doing the antibiotic routine, um, and he would be going maybe four, five, six times a year with something or other happening and needing drugs to get rid of it. Well, you know, at the end of that first year from doing the diet, we basically were going for health checkups, you know. I think I've had antibiotics once since then, and that was connected to a, my husband hadn't put the Dan chemicals in the hot tub. So what what ended up happening was it took it took how many years to get your grandson diagnosed? Well, from age two, looking healthy, to age five. You know, I want to say that last year uh, before he was diagnosed, uh, things were going on. He also eventually developed intestinal issues. It is not normal for kids to be irritable. It is not normal for them to have diarrhea or constipation. Right. And it's not normal for them every 20 minutes to be asking for food and paleness. I mean, you know. So please, um, if your kids have any of this stuff going on, life only gets worse. And I'll tell you what I would have feared uh, from all my reading is that if we hadn't detected this, he could have wound up with um, atrial fib going on, uh, other heart issues going on, liver things, uh, lymphomas can be linked to this. As a matter of fact, if you... Some of the research, as I was reading it, it would say, well, if you want to avoid the complications of celiac disease and lymphoma, you need to do an absolutely gluten-free diet. And that's what I aim for. You know, there's so much illness linked to this. It is not being properly addressed. If it were, there would be a huge drop in illness. It's not good so for what business. So what did the pediatrician say when you all went back to him and said, we want the test for celiac disease, and what did he say when it came back positive? Well, you know, I think he referred us to Children's Hospital at that point, and the doctor there um, wanted to do an endoscopic biopsy, and that's where they go down through your throat. They make you la-la. They take snips of your villi to see if they're really flat, and if they're flat, then, okay, you have celiac disease. And my daughter and her husband didn't want to do that, and he was so thin, you know, you could have poked right through the kid, and it could have been a bigger problem. So the doctor said, well, as long as he responds to the diet, then that will be good enough for me. So he responded in a day and a half. His stomach felt better. Oh, my God. Yeah, and a week and a half later, he had color in his cheeks, 
And I'd say about two months later, his little muscles were starting to develop. And um, he was a very thin, just an irritable child. And he beca- he could sit after this diagnosis and play a game without fidgeting and bouncing around and, you know. And how long oh. ago was that, Anne? Well, that was in zero four. You know, I'm not good at remembering dates, but boy, this one really sticks in my brain. <laughs> that was eleven years ago. Yes. And and so now he is sixteen. Yes. And how yep. is his health, how is his health now? Well, basically, he's pretty healthy. He um, he's at that age where you know he's. He may think it's okay if he's out to order fries that are fried with everything else. Uh-huh. And, you know, um, this really bothers me because little tiny bits of gluten can keep the process going. Yeah. But on the whole scheme of things, he's quite healthy. I don't believe he's had antibiotics for I don't know how many years mm. um, that I know of. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, all those childhood illnesses that uh, people scramble to the doctors for, I mean, they just faded away with our family. We oh, Basically, I, I don't get sick at my ripe old age. <laughs> and uh, and I have great energy. But, you know, we and had other problems in the family. Is, too, your, is your whole family gluten-free for the most part? Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we're quite uh, pretty stringent. You know, my husband is quite on board, and he's looking really good and is quite healthy. I mean, he's got a couple issues going on that probably were materializing for decades, so he's dealing Uh with a couple things. But his labs are really good, and one of his labs on something that could turn serious, I mean, his numbers are just really better. So, you know, I'm very thankful when people when people pick up your book, describe to us what it is that they're going to experience from your book. Well, I hope when they first look at it, they get the message <laughs> because I've got a couple of wheat grains on the front cover and um, in an X shape, the X in the word toxic. <laughs> but I, I really wrote this book so that people could relate to stories. So I have probably about 60 stories, not including my own, and uh, of people's lives uh, doing a 180, except for a couple of them. You know, my dad died of a liver thing. Come to find out later, I was reading the research on liver, and um, it was saying that if you take gluten out of your life, these problems can resolve. And I'm pretty sure he probably had celiac and died of liver cancer because of it. But anyway, uh, so the book has... Close to 700 citations of research, but I've really worked hard to make it easy to comprehend and to tie them into the various stories. So I have chapters on, you know, neurological issues, and let me tell you, there are a lot of them. Uh, chapter on cancer, on autoimmune, on skin, and um, it's just it's huge information. I'm a driven granny. <laughs> I'm over the edge. <laughs> I see on, on Amazon.com, if people go to Amazon.com, they can type in the toxic staple and your book pops up and there's an opportunity to look inside. And you have quite an impressive forward written by a gastroenterologist, Dr. Cynthia Ruder. Tell us about that. 
Oh, Dr. Rudert is one of the more forward-thinking, uh, I would say, um, traditional doctors. And she's a gastroenterologist from Atlanta. And I met her at a couple conferences, and um, I reached out to her, and she was lovely to um, give me a forward and basically saying, and now we're talking about the bigger picture of gluten and um, that gluten is a hazard for many, many people. And she uh-huh. strongly supported my book, and I'm so thankful because um, a lot of traditionally-minded doctors, um, and I know some of them that would not read my book. Okay. Um, anyway, so she's a when great people, gal. And, when people get into your book, there's a number of things that they're going to find. They're going to find that you've got a lot of different stories. They're going to find that you've got your own story, the story of your grandson in here, the story of different friends in here, and and you've got some good science in here that talks about the ways in which your autoimmune your autoimmune system, your neurological and your cerebral systems are really impacted by what it's going on with people's foods, right? Yes, yeah. And so, you know, the problem for for all of us seems to be that we get into this um, this horrible space where what we believe is that we can eat whatever we want. We ought to be able to eat whatever we want. What what is it that you say to people so that they can lovingly hear you? Oh boy, well. What I suggest, you know, if if people have, and this was stated on a very important website, if you have any chronic health issue going on for three months, you should be screened for celiac disease. And I, I wouldn't wait three months. If you have a child with something happening, you know, a month <clears throat> is long enough, I think. How about an but, adult? How about well, an adult? With anybody, with anybody, yes. Yeah. Um, okay, lost my train of thought there. What? So my question is, you know, food is so important to people. Right. How do oh, you right. lovingly get somebody to pay attention when you say you shouldn't be eating gluten? How How do you lovingly get people to understand? Because you know, we can say to people, okay, you shouldn't be eating sugar. <clears throat> and they'll look at us and say, I'm not a diabetic, I don't have a problem, I love my sugar, can't live without my sugar. And then if we really want to be helpful, we have to figure out some way to educate them. So what right. is your routine? I mean, I know you, you're lovely with the way that you approach people. I want our audience to hear how you talk to people lovingly about change their diet and still feel satisfied with their food. Well, you know, I I just feel that there is so much available out there now. I mean, it's incredible. There are thousands of gluten-free products, and they're getting better in flavor, texture, and price. And and it's only going to continue growing because this is such a huge po- uh, problem. I mean, if you can imagine it affecting 30% of the population. Right. And, um, and, and I also, I mean, how do you like living with headaches and migraines? and skin issues, and, I mean, your life will get so much better. 
almost, I'd say about 99% of the people I talk to say, yes, the gluten-free diet really helped me. And, and this is what it did. I got rid of this, that, and the other. Mm. And, and sometimes when I have a really kind of a tough person and, and I know that they have a good lifestyle, I, I'm bold enough to say to them, do, do you like living? How do you like living? And, um, you know, do you want to see your grandchildren grow up? Or do you want to be? La- I was just listening to Vermont uh, Public Radio with Tom Ashbrook about um, heart issues, and I mean there are heart issues linked to this. And you could take a hundred people with atrial fib and ask them if their doctors suggested testing for any gluten issues. And if two percent of them said yes, my doctor did, I might be surprised. Uh, this is so big and it is so under-recognized. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and your doctors just, you know, they're not there. And actually, with the huge amount of research that there is and the huge amount of illness, on, we're on two sides of the river here, um, with our doctors trying to treat us. And, um, you know, the information, there's no bridge there, there's very, very little happening to educate people. I don't see the NIH putting any conferences out there. And if they did, I would be worrisome about the testing. And the testing is a huge issue, and many doctors are not giving enough tests. They give one test unless so you have full-blown. What is it that you worry about in terms of the testing and about what they would do? Because people need to hear when you're worried about something what the concern is. And what the solution is. Okay, well, the concern is that they're not giving enough testing. So if your doctor gives you the one test that they generally give, a a tissue transglutaminase test, um, that's pretty good at tracking celiac disease down, but they set the bar very high. This is what I just discovered recently. At least I think this is what's going on. So I was talking about Dr. Marsh before with his different levels of um, damage to the gut. So if they set the bar pretty high at level four and you finally test, I don't know, it might be 20 and above, what happens if you're testing at 19? They tell you you don't have a problem with gluten unless Mm -hmm. things have improved in the last few months. Um, What if you test at 15 or what if you even test at six? That means, gee whiz, this person has a few antibodies going on. And um, maybe we should keep a better eye on this person, or maybe this person wants to really what take some preventative, what I think are preventative steps, and really look at this diet, because I think that the gluten-free diet is hugely, hugely um, preventative if you are sensitive to gluten. And not everybody is, but you know, 30% of the population, that's big. But so you have the blood tests. And in the book, I talk about four different blood tests with research to back it up. But you can still be negative on those four blood tests and be told you don't have a problem with gluten. But yes, you do. And there is a doctor, and I was so thankful that someone put me on to him, Dr. Fine, and his stool testing is very sensitive. And we were all negative, except for my grandson. We were all negative on the blood tests. And he was off the charts. Uh, And so shortly thereafter, we discovered um, the stool test. 
which is a patented specialized test. It is not a typical stool bacterial kind of test. And um, we were all positive. And I had one daughter who really looked um, almost anorexic, and she eats very healthily. Um, and another daughter that was having some kind of muscular fatigue issues. And one of the other grandkids, her milestones were way off. Uh, she's the only serious reader in the family now, as far as the grandkids go. <laughs> um, and uh, one of the other kids would, you know, get into little hissy fit tantrums. And uh, he, he was also allergic or sensitive to dairy. Dairy is huge amongst the gluten intolerant population. It's probably about mm. 50%. So, you know, I always recommend, uh, and I'm not a doctor, but um, well-read, and I, I suggest that people request the four blood tests that I talk about from your doctor. And if your doctor says, well, we're only going to give you the first one as covered by the insurance, then do the first one and see how you fare. If you have to pay for the other tests, I, I would urge people to go and do the stool test if it's out of your own pocket because I know I have storytellers in my book that are probably in their 60s and 70s now, and many of them discovered this very late in life only because they discovered Dr. Fine's stool tests. They went to doctors for years and had many, many tests. I mean, there's a huge expenditure uh, you know, in, in not discovering what's making people sick. And what's making people sick could very well be gluten for huge, huge issues. So mm. it's, a, it's a big problem, and um, I guess I just want people to know about this, especially, you know, I can look at children, and of course adults too, but I look at children and I often, you know, will go over and talk to a mom and explain, introduce myself and tell her what I've done and then bring the subject up. And, you know, and I, I do this with adults and most of them are thankful. And many mm -hmm. of them say, well, gee, I'm, I'm trying a gluten-free diet. But I, I suggest that you do more than try it. I think, um, I feel that it's really important to get tested, to see in black and white that you are intolerant to gluten. And, and when I got my results back, um, the stool results that were positive, what it said on the piece of paper was, if you want to avoid, and then he rattled off a half a dozen degenerative uh, neurological issues, if you want to avoid these issues, um, you need to do a 100% gluten-free diet for the rest of your life. And that's what I aim for. And I'm in really good shape. Uh, you know, I, I expect that my longevity has been enhanced. Um, I have a better disposition than I used to. You know, at the beginning of this, my family member said, gee, Mom, or gee, hon, you're letting things roll off your shoulder more easily. I used to be very sensitive. And, uh, well, I still am a sensitive person, but not but, overly. Yeah. <laughs> but you you don't feel chronicy, chronically achy and and uncomfortable and not clear in your mind, and so you've got a completely different shtick going on in terms of right. being able to manage yourself, right? Right, right. I, You know, I kind of look back and I wonder if I didn't have this problem as a kid 
because I was never that great of a student and I think I was probably kind of fuzzy in the brain and and I was a really thin kid too uh, looking back at those younger pictures um, but this thing can be with you and materializing for a long time and actually you can have full-blown celiac disease and have no obvious symptoms you know, and they find this out through studies that they do with whole families and somebody's family has it in the family. So then they test the other members, the aunts and uncles, and they find out Uncle Joe has full-blown celiac disease. But, well, maybe he was a little tired in the afternoon. Maybe he picked up a cold occasionally. Uh, maybe he has a little bit of anemia going on or, you know, but nothing overt. So it's a very, very, very insidious thing. It's very prevalent. And I urge people strongly to look into this because I know, well, all right, so I'm proud of my age. I just turned 73. And at 73, I am in far better shape than when I was in my 40s. I basically do not get sick, and I have great energy. And I think my disposition has improved and, uh, you know, life is good. Mm. And because life has been so good to me through the years and a wonderful family and, you know, a good life, not extravagant, but a good one. You Mm. know, I also came to the point where I thought, you know what, I need to do something about this. I have a conscience (laughs) and the public needs to know about this information. And so that's when I decided to write my book. Mm. Well, I'll tell you, it's interesting to spend time with you live because when when we are at our meetings and we go to eat together, you are really vigilant about making sure that what we order, what's on the menu, what's on the buffet, that we are able to get items that are gluten-free. And 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 it's a challenge sometimes because servers are often unaware. And I know that you have certainly influenced my dietary choices. So give people some examples of what they can do when they go out to eat so they don't feel like they have to sit there and starve. Oh, well, <laughs> well first of all, you, you need to ask, quite a few questions and and there's generally a lot on the menu. I mean, if if you're in a finer restaurant, I think you have a better chance of uh, not being contaminated. Um, you know, I have a list of questions when you're out to dinner that you can ask and and I've just recently discovered a few more. You mean <laughs> in example, the book? You mean in, in the, the book? Yeah, yeah, I've got a list in the book um if you're out to dinner what to ask. But you know, I didn't realize they put flour in hamburger. It's like, oh, my God, really? And um, <laughs> and they're apt to put um, pancake batter in scrambled eggs or flour in mashed potatoes. So I, I try not to be too obnoxious. I, I don't sit there and say I have celiac disease, blah, blah, blah. You know, I, I just talk about what do we have? Is this, you know, is there any wheat in this or does this have breadcrumbs or... What kind of vinegar, uh, you know, could you please check the label for such and such? And, um, you know, and I think a lot of places are really getting savvy, but if you're, you know, some people are so sensitive that the tiniest bit of gluten will send them to the hospital. 
Mm-hmm. And I, I'm not that sensitive, but boy, I'm very careful because I, I just saw what this thing did to my family. You know, my mm-hmm. little granddaughter, the one that's the reader now, was, um, you know, when you go to bounce a baby and how they touch down with their toes, she would never do that. And I'm thinking that she probably had a soft bone thing going on, osteomalacia. And um, she she was very delayed with standing, with walking, and with talking. And it's like, oh, my God. And, you know, with a little extra help in school and a gluten-free diet, and they don't do much dairy, um, she is a very together kid. I wish I had had her togetherness when I was a kid. Anyway. So it's... Go ahead. How difficult is it for you when, let's say, you are invited over to somebody's house for dinner or you go to a party? Do they engage you in conversation about, and we know that you are, and then you fill in the blanks, and, and do they try to be accommodating? Well, I'll tell you, we just met some new friends, and the woman is Greek, and uh, I'm half Greek, so somebody thought it would be a good mix, so they introduced us, and she had us for dinner. She's gluten-free herself, but I think she she and her husband just started reading my book, and he said, Anne, I'm going to take this more seriously now, because he was about 80% gluten-free. But um, she wanted to cook a meal from my childhood, a Greek meal that my grandmother might have done, and she's a wonderful cook. And because she was familiar with the diet, of course, everything was. And it's easy. I mean, if you cook vegetables and eat fruits and, you know, good meats that are not pumped up with fluid, um, you're okay. I mean, you can eat rice and potatoes. Uh, I'm shying away from corn because what they're doing to the corn is pathetic. But, um, you know, there's just so much out there that you can do. And follow the Mediterranean diet, only just get rid of uh, the wheat. And buy yeah. gluten-free pasta if you're going to do pasta. But there's, um, I did, we were invited a few years back to a friend's house, and I was neglectful because I didn't ask what she was planning for dinner. And I usually don't ask because most of my, our friends know. But um, she started to pull a casserole from the oven, and I thought, oh, no. Oh no, please! And so I asked if there, you know, if she had used any canned soups, and she had used mushroom soup, and you know, there is a gluten-free version of mushroom soup, but that's not the one she used. And I, I just was so uh, apologetic. I said, I'm so sorry, but I'll just have the salad. I'll have a double helping of salad. No, no, no. Yeah. We'll rush. We'll go to the freezer and get steak and broccoli. And uh, they wouldn't listen to me. They, you know, they threw something else on. But um, you you do have to be careful. But, you know, a few simple questions usually will take care of it. And I always travel. I'm going to visit my daughter in Denver, and I will be bringing fruit and nuts and raisins and things like that just to have on hand in case we get stuck somewhere. Mm-hmm. But even the airport. You know, I, um, I find that the first thing that happened to me when I stopped consuming gluten was my fat belly <laughs> mm-hmm. disappeared and I now have a, my fat belly went to a flat belly which was evidence enough for me and then I started feeling better my mm-hmm. joints hurt I didn't feel like I was somehow 
stuck in my body. I felt like I could once again move freely and live in my body, and it became really easy to lose weight. Yes. The weight the weight can kind of peel off. I know that at the beginning I lost 10 to 15 pounds without trying. I've had many people tell me that, and I've had quite a few tell me they've lost 30 to 40 pounds by taking gluten out, not necessarily trying to cut their calories. And part of the uh, the thing of it is that I, Dr. Fasano says that um, edema can be the only sign of celiac. Well, if you have edema, you're you're retaining fluids. Mm-hmm. And I know that one woman who was a massage gal, uh, her story's in the book. It's a short one, but basically. She was giving a massage, and one day she noticed that her hands were like a whole layer slimmer, and wow. she had lost, a, a, you know, a bunch of weight uh, along with her joints feeling better and whatever else was going on with her. Um, a lot of people have the joint issues, and um, and the weight, you know, can and of course, you know, there's two sides to the weight. You can be losing weight because you're malabsorbing and you're basically starving. But you can also be putting weight on. And I think there's something about the being drawn to the cookie jar because you're looking for nutrition. You need Your body knows it needs something. So, well, we'll just eat this box of, of crackers or we'll just get into one of these bags of cookies and maybe that'll fill me up. But it never does, of course, you know. But it puts the weight on. Mm-hmm. But the other thing with the weight is um, I noticed that I lost a fair bit of weight, but um, lately I've been eating too many carbs. So it isn't just gluten, and I know that I need to cut some of the good bread out that I'm eating. <laughs> Found, I have a friend that likes to make a loaf of bread every now and then, and boy, <laughs> it's really good. Yeah, absolutely. So I need to watch do they that. Make, do they make a, a gluten-free bread? Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah I wouldn't touch it otherwise. <laughs> so one of the things that I have found is I just I don't say much. If people ask me, "Gee, you look great. You look so healthy. What are you doing?" What I what I tell people is a number of things that I've been doing, and one of which is to stop the gluten. And when I go out to eat, I will just I will ask for my the thing I order the most is I will say, "Do you have a Caesar salad?" Yes, great. You have a Caesar salad without the dressing. Fabulous. Thank you very much. Could I just have the Caesar salad without the dressing? And I don't need the croutons. Thank you very much. And do you have a side of olive oil? And then I'm fine. And, you know, people just think I'm being, um, I don't know, slender somehow. So I don't really ask a lot of questions because it seems like sometimes when you go out and you want to interact with your server, they get so uncomfortable because they don't know the answers to the questions. Well, you know, I haven't really noticed that, the uncomfortable thing. Uh, I have more so noticed that some of them think they know a lot about it, and then they'll show up at the table with um, chicken wings that didn't say that they were deep fried on the menu. Oh, these yes, these are gluten-free, and then, you know, anything that's deep fried, if it's fried with something else, is a no-no. So, And that goes for French fries, of course. Because um, of the contamination and the oil be, from the gluten? 
Well, it's it's more from the contamination from the other battered foods, you know, the um, whatever they might batter up and fry in the same oil. Yeah. You know, and it's minuscule, but um, nonetheless, minuscule can keep that damage going. You know, there have been studies um, where a two-year study with just little tiny bits of crumbs for maybe a two-year period and... No, wait, I'm getting that mixed up with another study. So one study, about 60 or 70% of the people who thought they were on a gluten-free diet still had damaged villi. About 10% of them had very damaged villi, and maybe Mm. about 20%, you know, were in good shape. Mm. And so that kind of tells you that you need to really take this diet seriously. You know, no nibbling your your friend's uh, piece of pie crust. Uh Uh-huh. And, uh, right. you know, if if you care about your future health. So what about what about psychiatric disorders and gluten? Talk a little bit about that. Well, let's see. Um, I have a wonderful story in the book of MS, which is a neurological issue. Um, and this gal is a chiropractor, and she has all of her patients on gluten-free and dairy-free and everything, including their, um, what's the word I'm looking for, metabolic or their hormonal issues, their their weight, their uh, joint issues and skin issues, everything gets better okay. with them. Um, there's um, a fellow who gave me uh, a big, long story, and I kind of broke it up in the book, and he had gluten ataxia, which is a balance issue, and he was walking with a cane or a wheelchair if they were out in a crowd. And he found out that it was celiac, and he claims that within three days of ditching gluten, he was able to ditch his cane. Okay. And you know, so what about psychological, psychiatric disorders? You wrote a little bit about that in there too, mental yeah. disorders. Well, you know, depression, um I'm not pulling up any psychiatric, but just, you know, a psychosis. Oh, schizophrenia is, can be linked to this. Uh, not all cases of schizophrenia and not all cases of depression, but some. But do we know how many? No, because they're not getting enough testing to figure it out, you know. I think they need to go further with tests. Um, I wish they would do some of the stool testing on some of these groups of people that might test negative for celiac, but let's test them and see if they're gluten intolerant with this very sensitive stool test. Um, there do, you are think, new- do you think uh-huh. that it would be helpful when we have newborns in the hospital at birth, we test them for a lot of things. Is there a way to test at birth if somebody has these sensitivities? You know, I don't know about that, but I, I would well, I, I think you almost need to be consuming gluten mm. uh, for the antibodies to develop. And I think it takes a year, a couple of years maybe, or a year and a half for antibodies to develop that you might, mm. you know, you might be looking for. However, mothers, pregnant women, um, you know, there's, let me just see, there is more, there's testing for um some hospital tests for babies mm. that I'm trying to get this straight in my brain. Okay. Um, 
that are less common than celiac disease. But mm-hmm. do they test pregnant women or women that want to become pregnant for celiac disease? No. Okay. And, and so, Anne, do issues. you um, do you do talks? Do you give professional um, speeches about this topic? Are you are you traveling around with your book and talking to people? Well, I'm needing to get some of that lined up. I'm doing a little bit locally, and uh, you know, there's just no end <laughs> to things you need to do when you write a book. Um, so, but that's, that is on my list. I would really like to do some big talks, um, at some corporate level or college level or whatever, because people need to know more about this and, uh, they're just not getting it. Right. They're not getting it from their doctors. Are you, are you writing like on your website? Do you have a website that our audience members can go to? Yes, I have toxicstaple.com and I think... I think right now it might be active. I have a, um, you can sign up for a free report, and I think there's a bonus thing in there somewhere. Uh, If you go to the homepage and um, you want to download that, it's it's right there. Okay. And And I also, I'm trying to blog, but I'm a little bit pokey at it. I just put a poem up. I've written probably about 50 poems, so you'll be seeing some of my poems show up there over the next year or two, and um, I'm trying to address they, certain subjects. Are they are they poems about the toxic staple? They are all poems about gluten. Some of some of them mention my book. Um, I've written a little, a long poem about one of the grandkids that actually I think I extended it and included all the grandkids. <laughs> and um, I might try to get that into a, a book form someday. Okay. Uh, you know, it's all about celiac and gluten and what it's doing to people. Actually, what I'd like to tell our listening audience is that if you go to toxicstaple.com, there's a very obvious sign-up box so that you can receive the Toxic Staple blog post email. And the free report that you'll get is called The Hazards of Gluten Tips to Transform Your Health and Life. And the other thing that you're going to find there is that um, there, there, there is great blog posts for you to be reviewing, all of which are just amazingly helpful. And, Anne, we're out of time, and so I'm going to bring our interview to a close, and thank you very much for being with us today, and wish you best of luck with everything that you're doing. Thank you so much, Dr. Deb, and I can't wait to see you again. Okay, you take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, bye-bye.